We'll be reading Jeremiah chapter 33 this morning in its entirety. I'll bring you out the New King James Version. Jeremiah chapter 33, God's Word declares, <clears throat> Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at, at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Thus says the Lord again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate without man and without beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts. For the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praises into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place which is desolate without man and without beast, and in all its cities there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds, causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, and in the places around Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah, the flock shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests and Levites lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites and the priests, my ministers. As the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, 
the two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before them. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servants, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. When we consider the faithfulness of God and we talk about that, we often, and rightly so, direct our thoughts and attentions at the concept and the idea that he keeps his promises, that he is one who is trustworthy, that he will come through in the end. And in our passage here, we find that that uh, principle is true, but it is prefaced by something that we want to look at very carefully. And we have a single verse in the chapter here that has been put to song that many people have put to memory and that they point to and say, well, this is the, uh, one of the promises of God that um, he has offered, and we often forget that it starts off not with a promise, but with uh, exhortation. This is actually God exhorting Jeremiah and the people of Israel, of Judah, to um, turn to him. And then they will see the mighty working of God on their behalf. And so we want to see today that yes, God is faithful. He does have a future that is secure. Um, but that security is established upon the principle that we call upon him. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that entails here very shortly. But first, let's go, Lord, in prayer as we get our service started. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. We thank you for the opportunity to study it. We pray my guard this time. Uh, from our ideas being inserted in your word, but that you might uh, bring your truth into our heart and mind, that what is spoken is in accordance with it, that it is directed by your spirit, and that uh, it works its purposes in our minds, in our hearts. You might give us discernment, but you might also give us humility to receive your truth and allow it to redirect our lives. We praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to chapter 33, and it's really the last chapter of this portion of Jeremiah, this subsection, if you will, that talks about the future hope. Um, we're not going to abandon that, but that's the emphasis of this, these portion of scriptures that talk about the distant future, the part that is still future to us, although we are seeing it come to be uh, in an in a incredible manner. And so we know that we are in the last days, for this is what God has promised to happen, and we are seeing it begin to uh, occur uh, in these last decade or two. Uh, and so God is going to be faithful, and this is our our chapter that's going to summarize that. In fact, the whole last half of the chapter is really just uh, repeating uh, aspects of God's promises that were already given in the previous chapters. And we're going to look at that. And then after that, when we get into the next chapter, the next few weeks, we're going to go back to some of the narrative of the engagement between Jeremiah and the kings of Israel and the leaders of Israel and their stubbornness which God is going to reference here in this chapter, but we're going to see it exemplified 
very vividly in the next few chapters where it's going to cost Jeremiah his freedom. And we already know that he doesn't have that freedom now, but we're going to see how that came to be and why. What is it that Jeremiah did that uh, the king of Israel, the king of Judah wants him locked up and tried to silence him? We're going to see that more fully. But here in the midst of this, when Jeremiah might be discouraged, when Jeremiah might uh, start thinking, well, my ministry is over, my life is going to be taken soon. In fact, um, one of the things we're going to find out in a few weeks is that um, they only fed him as long as there was food available. And during the siege of Jerusalem, they ran out of food. And who's the first person you stop feeding? The people in the prison. Um, and so he ran out of food. And so God, in the midst of his prison time, is encouraging him with the fact that this is not the end. Um, this might be for this generation, but this is not the end of my promises. This is not the end of my faithfulness. And this is not the end for Israel at all. And so we find that here in prison, God has a word to speak to Jeremiah about the distant future. But it is all built upon, it is all dependent upon um, their willingness to respond to this command. And we often look at the last half of these kinds of verses and focus on God's part, and we almost always neglect the front end of the verses that, that tell us to do something. And so let's read the first uh, three verses here. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, is what other, uh, what the Septuagint says, that's what it, referring to as it, who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, and Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the Lord, Jehovah, is his name. So he uses a very personal name, his own personal name, and says, this is my message for you. And isn't it wonderful that one of the first things that God wants to do is establish, first of all, I am the great God who has created all things, and I am the personal God who has lent his name to you. And we have the two extremes laid out before us. I am the powerful God that created all things, established all things, made all things good, and I am the one who is intimately involved with you. I am Jehovah. The Lord is with you. I am on a first-name basis with you. And I'm allowing you to be on a first-name basis with me. Now, there's a few people around the world that I would love to be on a first-name basis with, uh, you might think of some very powerful individuals, uh, presidents and chancellors and people like that. Um, I don't know that I have a lot of interest in being a first-name basis with some of them. Um, my list might be very different from other people's lists of who I'd like to be on a first-name basis with that just recognize me. And I really enjoy being on a first-name basis with several people. Um, but none of them compare to being on a first-name basis with God, the creator of all that exists. And so here Jeremiah is in prison and God said, listen, I'm the one that created everything. By my might and power, everything exists. And you are on a first name basis with me. This is my name. I am. You know me. I am the Lord. And then in that context of the Almighty One being the all-intimate one, 
we have verse 3 that says, Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And we love the last part of that verse that, yes, God's going to answer us. He's going to show us, he's going to exercise his might and his power on our behalf. And this is what we all want to stake claim to. But we miss the first few words. And we de-emphasize them and we don't really discuss them. And we minimalize them. We think, well, if I just use this magic formula of, of a certain kind of prayer format that somehow now I've got God by the tail and he has to answer because of this verse. Because we don't understand what is involved in the process of calling to the Lord. This is not just uh, a lifting up a prayer. This is more substantial than this. He is inviting us to engage him as, first of all, the Lord Almighty, and then as an intimate one with us, that we bend ourselves to him, that we understand who he is, both on the grand scale and on the intimate scale, and that we come to him on his terms and involve ourselves in a relationship with him. Call to me. It is not just simply whenever you have a wish list to go to God and say, now you have to do these things because I called by your name. But rather, this is a, a spear of the heart that recognizes that I need to come to the one who created all things and has given me his first name, his, his most intimate name, and I need to be in a relationship with him. Now, there are plenty of people that call on the church's phone and want stuff. They don't want any counseling. They don't want any long-term assistance. They don't want anything personal. They just want one thing, and that is a handout. Um, and those kind of phone calls I don't like. I try to engage them. I try to ask them, can we help you financially or some financial counseling? Can we give you, provide you some opportunities to do some work? Can, and I go, with, and inevitably they are not capable of doing, are not interested in doing any of those things. Out of all of my years, I've had one or two individuals that really wanted help. And you know what they did? After they hung up the phone, they came and saw me. That's, the term used here is that you are going to do more than just a quick call to heaven. Hey, I need your help down here. I'm in trouble. But yet that's how most people view this verse. Rather, it's about I am willing to surrender myself and submit myself to your instruction, to your guidance, to your direction. I am willing to consider and to my own ways and what needs to be adjusted there and as I said, I've had one or two in, in the entirety of my ministry life, uh, which is getting longer and longer, uh, one or two that have truly called out for help. Most people just want this quick handout. 
so they can go on doing whatever they were doing, no matter how much trouble it got into them. They didn't really want to change. They didn't want to really address any of the real problems. They just wanted a quick fix. And that's how most of us come to God. And I got to tell you, when I get those phone calls, I roll my eyes. That's what I do. And I got, I got to believe that God in heaven, when he gets those kind of prayers, just rolls his eyes. Here we go again. They think they, they, they learned a little verse and a little song, and someone put the chorus. They don't understand the context. They don't understand me, that I'm the one who created everything that exists, and I want an intimate relationship with you. That's why I gave you my first name. It's a very personal name. And God's got to be up there in heaven frustrated that we have taken this precious verse and made our part minimal and his part maximum and said we, we don't need to even have any interest in a long-term relationship or in an intimacy. We're just interested in the handout. We want to see him do great and mighty things and to show me things that I don't know. At Cedarville, this was one of the verses that one of my roommates put up before every test. Call me and I'll... Show you great and mighty things that thou knowest not. Because he didn't study enough. What a silly, foolish way to use a verse. But this is the common approach to passages like this. Rather, if we look at verse 2, we realize that's the person we're calling to. The focus isn't on, I've got him because he said this, now he has to do it. And then if he fails, we say, oh, he's not faithful. We think we have the right to point a finger at him and accuse him. Rather, the focus should be on verse 2, that we begin to humble ourselves and go, I am walking spiritually into the presence of the one who created all things. And established everything who wants intimacy with me. And what have I offered him? quick phone call, prayer, I'm in trouble, send money. And we wonder why he doesn't respond. So call to me. That is, come to the one who made everything, who desires intimacy, come to him on his terms, Come to him with the humility and the desire to genuinely see his work in your life. And he says, then I will answer you and I will show you great mighty things which you do not know. And he is about to reveal some of that to Jeremiah that there is much more to God than just the immediate circumstances of Jerusalem under siege by a Babylonian army that is putting up siege mounds against the walls. And there's more than that. God has a bigger, broader plan than the immediate circumstances. I know you're in prison. I know the bread has run out. I told you there would be famine. There would be sword. There would be pestilence. I told you this is how it was going to happen in Jerusalem. You should have steeled yourself against it and been ready. And in fact, though, that is not the end. I have much more I'm going to be doing that you don't understand. And ultimately, this isn't just about... Uh, information that God is going to reveal to us, 
But when he says he's going to show us his greatness, show us his might, and that we don't know, it's about not understanding, that we don't often appreciate that God's plan is much broader, much larger than your lifespan, much larger than your calendar. And I know your computer calendar can go to whatever year. Have you ever tried to find out what day 4000 A.D.? No. But God's plan goes like that. But we see the finite. He is the infinite. We see local. He sees universal. We are focused on these puny little things around us and he is moving the stars in the heavens. This is the one we come to. And when we are inviting him into our life, we're inviting him to do things in and through us to do great and mighty things. Um, They are things that we don't even know enough to ask for. He says, you don't even know. I'm going to show you great and mighty things that you don't even know about. This is well beyond your prayer list. These are things that you can't even comprehend. The things that we don't even consider. What is God's grandest plan? And God reveals them here. And we might say, well, where do I fit into that grandest plan? Because we're always interested in where we fit um, and not necessarily what God is doing all over. Um, But God says, my might and my power, my faithfulness, all that I am is at work. And you can trust in me whether you understand it or not, whether it fits into your concept of what you think your needs are, what you think is the evidence of my might and power and and revelation. um, They're pretty small compared to God's plan. So here's Jeremiah in prison inside a city that is under siege where the bread's running out, famine, pestilence, and sword is their future on the immediate horizon. But way out there, God says, I still have a plan. So let's go and God's going to deal with the immediate. Let's, let's look at your immediate. As if God doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, you've noticed I'm in prison here. I haven't seen much food coming through that little door there. Um, do you know my state, my condition? And God says, yes, I know the condition you're in. You ever ever notice how many times we go to God and kind of act like God doesn't know what we're going through and like we know God when it's the other way around? He knows everything you're going through and you don't have a clue what he's about, hardly. And so here comes God. He says, yes, I know what's going on. The houses of the city, even the palace, They have taken down the walls, the structures of these buildings to add to the walls of Jerusalem to try to guard against the Babylonians. And God says, I know what they're doing and it's stupid. I know what they're doing. They're trying desperately every measure at their disposal to try to stop The inevitable. And it's not inevitable because the Babylonian army is so powerful. It is an inevitability because I said so. End of discussion. I, you can build all the 
all the protections you want, do all the measures you can, fight with all the, the valor that you possess, do it all, and at the end, you will all be dead in the streets. Even if you are victorious over the Babylonians, God's going to tell Zedekiah later on, even if you're victorious, I'll kill you myself. God is well aware of the circumstances of Jeremiah. He says, I am allowing and enabling this to occur. And you remember the reasons, because of my great anger, my great fury, because of your disobedience to me. So yes, I perfectly understand your circumstances. And in fact, I am using them to give a lesson to the people of Israel for generations down the road when I do have the implementation of my full plan, they're going to remember this time when they didn't respond and they died and Jerusalem was destroyed. And so, yes, I know and because of your wickedness, this is happening. I know your current circumstances, but the current circumstances are not a full reflection of my whole plan. And we go to the very next verse after he shows Jeremiah, yeah, I'm aware of what you're going through, and you know the reason why you're going through it, because of your own sin. And as a pastor, I get to deal with this pretty regularly. People come to me with their problems that are a problem because they are the consequence of their own decisions to do wrong. They don't choose God's best, and then they come crying, oh, I have a horrible life. I was like, well, you, you kind of made that choice back there. Yes, you have to live your choices. There it is again, I say it all the time. It's, now my kids are saying it to me. You have to live your choices. Don't complain to us. <clears throat> See, truth does that. They can use it against you when you give it to people. Um, but we don't want to live our choices. Israel didn't want, Judah didn't want to live the consequences of their wickedness. So they wanted God to move mightily and to make them comfortable and secure and safe, but they didn't want to come to him on his terms. They didn't want to call to the Lord Almighty on an intimate level. This allows God to come in and do his will in your life. They didn't want to pray the prayer of Jesus in the garden, your will, not mine. That's what it means to call on the Lord. Your will, not mine. But that's not how we go to God. We go to God with the list. Here's my will, Lord. Can you approve that and sanction it and make it happen? Your will, not mine. Simple, quick prayer of our Lord. Although apparently he prayed it for hours. Long enough for the disciples to fall asleep. And he prayed it in anguish. Poured out much before the Lord in that setting. But it really boiled down to just that phrase. Not my will, but yours be done. That's what it means to call upon the Lord. Israel wouldn't do that. So these are the circumstances. Live the consequences, but don't blame God for being unfaithful because he is correcting you 
by making you live the consequences of your own foolish decisions that muddy the waters of your life that should run pure and clean in righteousness of Christ that muddy them with this world. And you live the consequences of adding that impurity to your life. Don't you cry out to God to be unfaithful to you. You have been one unfaithful to him. So where is the faithfulness of God measured? Well, he will, he will be sure to correct his children. We know that. Correct? Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines every son. A good parent is a parent that will discipline his children. A selfish parent lets the kids rule the roost because they don't want to be bothered with all the hassle it takes to correct children. And it is a never-ending it seems like, at least for years, it's like, can I never get 20 minutes without having to correct one of these rugrats? Been there. A loving father will be faithful to discipline his children. He has also given us warning that we have opposition in the world. He says, through much tribulation, must enter the kingdom of heaven. So he has warned us and prepared us, braced us to encounter the world. And I've tried, we, we, as a good father, you try to do that to your children. It's part of being a faithful father is to realize this is your safe place. This is your haven. This is the church, your home. But out there in the world, people are wicked. They are evil. They are nasty. They are selfish. They are violent. They are, they are God-haters. That's who they are. They are not your friends. And you warn them. And so God has warned us, do not be friends with the world because friends with the world is enmity with God. And the last facet of his faithfulness that I really want to, that God then delves into is, I have a future secure for you. Way out there. And we've sung about heaven again today. And I don't know if hopefully you've noticed that throughout the course of this, these few chapters, we have focused on all those songs in that part of your hymn book on heaven. Because for Israel, there was that future kingdom on earth, but for the church, we are looking at a presence with Jesus. But here God wants to get into, he says, you want to know something that you haven't focused on? you haven't been really praying about because you're so focused on the immediate circumstances around you that were brought on by your own sin and you haven't thought about where does my faithfulness lead? Here I'm going to show you. It says, verse 6, Behold! It says, Take a look at this! Remember he just said, I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Behold means look at this. I'm going to show you something. I will bring it, that is, the, the land, the people, health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. I'm going to cause the captives of Judah and of Israel return. I'm going to rebuild these places as at the first. I'm going to cleanse them. From, I mean, he, this is an incredible list. We're just, ooh, I uh, should get goosebumps just reading through this. I'll pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. And, and he has this whole list of things. Here's the, the, what I've got planned. Yes, right now you are living in this mucky, terrible, 
dangerous environment, but it's by your own choice. You wanted to go slop with the pigs and now you're living their life. And the reason the pigs are in the slop is because they're getting ready to go to the butcher house. Good reason not to sit with the pigs. You're going to have their, an end like theirs. God says, I don't want that for you. I have healing. I have, I have peace. I have all of this wonder waiting for you. And it will be implemented one day when you have fully learned this lesson and you have trusted me so that, to the point that you call to me as the one true and living God and as the one who desires intimacy with you. Then, this is what I have and I will cause all this to happen. And we are entering into the time when the captives of Judah and of Israel returning to the land, they are rebuilding the places as of old. They are uh, shepherds in the land. They are places to count the sheep. There's going to be not just a few sheep here and there. There are going to be flocks and flocks, and he refers to someone who has to count them, that they're going to be re-engaged in the economy of Israel will be, will be flourishing. And all of this is going to happen under the guidance of God to his purposes of establishing his kingdom and giving full healing and health to his people, not just physically, but spiritually. He will pardon them. He will cleanse them. He will forgive them. And they will enjoy all those benefits by receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Messiah at his second coming. It is certainly certain that it was available at his first coming, but they rejected him. And so they were cut off, and we were grafted in. Praise the Lord. We got grafted in. But he hasn't given up on the trunk, on the root. They will flourish again. And all these promises will happen. And what is its full purpose? Its full purpose isn't just for Israel. Its full purpose is for the joy and the praise to the name of God. That here where men were disobedient to God and ultimately cursed God and blamed God, we come to a time where it says that all of it shall be for this purpose. Verse 9 a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all nations of the earth, that Israel will look at it and give glory, not just to Israel, it will give glory to God. It will bring honor to him. And not only of Israelis will look at this and say, praise Jehovah, all the nations of the earth will, when they hear all the good that I do to them. (laughs) And so they're going to, give joy and praise to God, and then it says they're going to fear and tremble me. They're going to have fear and trembling. If he's for them, we've been against them. (laughs) We're in trouble. And yes, Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and they are in trouble. And they will fearfully and with trembling serve him but they will see all the goodness and prosperity that he is providing to Israel. And it will be to the praise of his name. And so God is faithful. He made his promises. They will be 
complete. They will be fulfilled at that day in its fullness. And it will impact not just Israel and Judah, but it will impact all the nations for that season. And on the, all the earth, a place that was desolate, a place that was a curse, a place that no one wanted to be, becomes a place of joy and singing. A place of weddings. A place of gladness. And a place of praise to God and sacrifice. We can see it preparing now. That 100, 120 years ago, no one was interested in Israel. Not just the nation and the existence of Israel, but even the land itself. No one wanted to be there. And of course, the famous one is Mark Twain, who went there and wrote, this is a desolate place. He used that very word. He says, there's nothing here. Why would anyone ever want to spend any time in this place? It is dead. It is despair. And since his days of walking there, look at what the Lord has done now. It is a lush place. It is a productive place. It is a populated place. It is the place that so much of everything going on in our world focuses on. What's going on in Jerusalem and Israel? God is already setting the stage for the fulfillment of this passage and it is for his praise that this place where no one praised, no one sang except for dirges, God says there'll be joy. And that joy will come in the morning, but you must endure the night. And all that will be established to God's glory. The balance of this chapter after God has described all of this through verse 13 and shown it to Jeremiah what his long-range plan was. Once we understand where the faithfulness of God is demonstrated best, not in bailing me out of the problems I crave for myself by not walking in his ways, not from... Uh, being a helicopter parent over me while I engage the world and the flesh and the devil in this age. Um, but rather, the faithfulness of God is measured in his keeping of his promises. And praise the Lord, his promises are that this world is not our home and that he has prepared a place for us. And that's where we keep our eyes set. That's where we keep our longing and our joy and and it is no mistaking that when we arrive in heaven one of the first things that so many of the prophets of old heard was singing they heard singing 
And one of the key aspects of Revelation was when the song changes, and it changes again with our arrival, with Christ's arrival, and then with our arrival, the singing to the praise of his name, for he is faithful. There, his faithfulness is fully appreciated, and the joy will, and the happiness, the gladness, the fullness, the voices will reflect it. And so while we look through and we can, the balance of this chapter, as I said, is, is really, in some cases, verbatim what was shown in other ch- chapters. Um, but the Masorites added this in and, and included this portion. is not in the Septuagint, these verses from 14 through the end of the chapter. But they are obviously derived from other portions of Jeremiah and brought in to remind us and of what was already passed. And it becomes a nice little summary of this section of Jeremiah that is all about the far future. It's tied to someone, the branch of righteousness, Christ Jesus. That that future for Israel is tied to that one man, that Messiah, that seed of David, who will be on the throne of David. And it is tied to the fact that God endures, that he is the one who has set these covenants, and just as his covenants was with nature, that they will go to such a degree that we have laws of nature. Well, those are derived in the character and person of God and his faithfulness, that they don't change. And so we have all of the wonder of our future built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, built upon the promises of God who has created all that exists. And because those covenants are sure, we have confidence. Not because we're good people, not because we prayed a certain prayer and we called to the Lord, but rather because we recognize this is the Almighty we're dealing with who loves me on a very personal level and desires an intimate relationship with me. And he has instructed me to come to him on his terms, because those are the only ones that work. Your terms don't. Our covenants are broken all the time. God's aren't. God doesn't break those. And so we come to him on his terms. And we keep our eyes stayed on his faithfulness that is measured not in hours, weeks, months, years, not even lifetimes. His measure is eternal. And I will trade a few hours of misery, a few years of this world for eternity in his presence any day of the week. I hope that you have that same spirit to call upon the name of the Lord. For he has some wondrous things he's already shown us in his word if we'll take the time to investigate that. That we might have a full confidence to live for him. For he has so much he has already accomplished for us and will finish what he has started. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the preciousness of your truth. 
and for its power. And Lord, we acknowledge before you this morning that we too frequently want to come to you on our terms and want you to do for us our will. And seldom have you heard us pray your will. Not mine be done. And for this we ask for your forgiveness. For we know that this is selfishness and rebellion. This is not what it means to call upon you. Lord God, we do thank you for the promises that you have given to us that are secure because of the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross and on the empty tomb and on his presence in your throne room this hour. And Lord, we thank you that you as a loving parent have and do and will discipline your children when they disobey. That you have warned us and strengthened us and equipped us to endure and have called upon us to do it. And that you are preparing a place for us that is beyond our imagination. And Lord, we thank you so much for that love that you have shown for us in all of this. And Lord, our prayer is one of thanksgiving for reminding us of our need respond to that love as a wife is called to respond to her husband's love that is with submission surrender, honor, praise obedience of children responding to loving parents Lord help us and thank you for challenging us Lord, we desire to respond today in that fashion. We thank you for your spirit. And we pray you might again and again be patient and persistent in guiding us into that truth. Even when we at times resist it, remind us of it by your word, your people, your spirit. And Lord, we thank you that we can have this access, this intimate access to you. Not through a priesthood of men, but the high priest Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can come to you and call you our Father. We pray that we might be children, bring praise to your name. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.